Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Gene Golub, the founder and chairman of the board of Golub & Company, a family-owned international real estate developer and owner based in Chicago. The headlines of our conversation were around the discipline and passion of developing commercial real estate, the values and culture that it takes to continue the legacy of a family-owned and controlled enterprise now led by G2, the second generation, and the diversification of the business into Eastern Europe, where Golub has been one of the leading U.S. providers in bringing institutional quality real estate to Eastern European capitals. Gene is now in his 80s and living largely in Florida and involved in the company directionally, but not day to day. Thinking a lot these days about aging myself and having elderly parents, I think about the meaning of aging and the meaning of our work engagement past 60, past 70, and even later. I was frankly blown away by Gene and the level of engagement, involvement, and excitement that he continues to get from the business. It has a lot to do with this being a family affair and the warmth and welcoming that brings to someone like Gene coming into the office. Much of my conversation with Gene and the night before at dinner with his daughter, Paula Harris, who he said is the heart and soul of the company, and grandson-in-law, Josh Patinkin, both leaders in the business, Thinking about Gene's legacy and the values and responsibility gained in a multi-generational enterprise that has long-term values and relationships in the business. It was a great conversation. I'd like to thank JLL, also a Chicago-based company, for its sponsorship of Leading Voices. JLL is a global real estate services firm. This episode is brought to you by their property management group, which is proud to announce the JLL Cure Approach to Experience Management a new way of looking at the world we live in and work in. Cure means I care for in Latin and describes the people-first philosophy that JLL brings to property and experience management. For more information, email jllcure at am.jll.com. That email is jll, I'm going to spell it out, jllcurae at am.jll.com. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation with Gene Golub. So, Gene, we're here in your office on the Miracle Mile, and I just have to say, walking over here from my hotel, Chicago's one of the most amazing urban places on the planet, and walking these six blocks over here, you get that feeling yet again. Any comments about the city that you're in and the city you've helped build and the city maybe that you love? I love the city. (laughs) It's terrific. I always make the statement to people that are new to Chicago that when you come in from the airport and you look at the skyline, right. you know, there's a huge skyline, 90% of what you see, which is a huge percentage, are buildings that have been built in the last 70 years. Mm-hmm. If you think about that, and that it's in my lifetime, in my business lifetime. Right. So I've seen everything that I look out these windows and I see, and I know every building. I know every one that was built here in Chicago, for mm-hmm. sure. And who did it, how it was done, who the contractors were, who the architects were. And it's very exciting because Chicago has a representation of almost every great architect in the world. Right. All have been involved in deals here and in architecture here. I've done this boat tour. It's I've done terrific. it twice, and it just gives you goosebumps. Yeah. Did you go into the architectural center across the way? No. You got to go in there. It's a new one. They just relocated. As a matter of fact, we're on the board of the architectural center, and you must go in there, and you'll see tall buildings from everywhere, and it's called the Chicago Architectural Center. I will do that. So we're going to hear your life story and the story of your business. But I always ask the question to get started just for context for the people listening, like, why are we talking to Gene Golub? So give kind of an elevator speech. This is a tall building, so it's a long elevator speech. But what's your company? What are the big headline of what you've accomplished in your career and what you guys do here? Well, we have a very eclectic business. <laughs> yes, you do. I sometimes wonder, do we really have a strategy? We probably really don't have a strategy. We're very entrepreneurial. Uh-huh. And the deals just happen. They have to have some quality where we have an interest and have the ability to add some value. Mm -hmm. We're not 
building just high-rise office buildings in certain markets, or we buy buildings, we sell buildings, we build buildings, we mm -hmm. lease buildings, and we manage buildings. Right. And basically residential and office. We do high-rise. When you really stop to think about the business, you know, building high-rises is a little different than just being in the real estate business. It's unique in and of itself. Yeah. And, it's and they're not, bets. when you really think about it, the amount of firms that are really high-rise developers are not that many. There are plenty, but overall, it's a very, very precise kind of business. Right. And because of our development capability and the disciplines required in development, it helps us in our acquisitions, in our leasing and in our management mm -hmm. because we have these disciplines covered from financial and architectural and all the other elements. It's a good elevator speech. It's an interesting question. So I'll disclose that I had dinner with your daughter and grandson-in-law, so G2 and G3 last night. So we talked about your business a little bit. One thing I didn't know, should have known, is that you're more of a merchant builder and merchant acquirer than a long-term holder. And so that also defines who you are, what you can do, because there has to be a constant flow of renewal in the business. We have to do deals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's our business model. And when I turned the company over maybe 25 years ago to the second generation, my kids, I always talked about, well, changing the business model and no. <laughs> They weren't interested in changing the business model and have continued the model that we've had from the day we started business, mm -hmm. which is like 59 years ago. Right. And one thing I heard last night at dinner, if there was at least their headline of secret to success, is how to build, maintain, manage, foster relationships. Right. You want to talk about that for a sec? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the real estate business isn't about real estate. It's about money. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's all a matter of finance. Doesn't work capital, without money. Capital markets and real estate is the commodity. So relationships really relate to being able to acquire capital to do deals, to build buildings and buy buildings. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what she meant when she said that about relationships. So the relationships are with the institutional investors, uh -huh. both debt and equity. Right. And I'm really happy to say that we have a wonderful reputation on doing business with almost every major institution in this country and even sometimes overseas. So that's the key element. And there's two dynamics to the word relationship, though, as you just described it. And one dynamic is you got to know a lot of people, have them like you, have them be relationships with some level of integrity and authenticity. But then the other is you can't mess them up. So you actually have to deliver even better if those contacts are to translate into relationships. Well, I probably could answer that, is that even though we do a lot of volume you uh -huh. know, in billions now, you know, and but I still kind of think of it as a sort of a mom and pop business. Right. We're involved. The family's involved. Of course, I'm not that much involved anymore. But we've always had an involvement. If we're doing an office building, if it was a 200,000 square foot tenant, or a 4,000 square foot tenant. Okay, who do you know? How do we help? Right. It was like always everybody's involved mm -hmm. and everybody shares in the wealth as well. Uh -huh. So that's our operational thoughts and efforts and every deal is important. And it translates back to our investors and they know that. Mm -hmm. You know, they sense it and they feel it. Uh -huh. We're very, very open and communicate very, very well. Sometimes I'm amazed that when I see how, you know, the communication is with all the different investors that we have when we are operating a building or building a building, and we're good at it. And so I guess that the institutions and the people that provide capital to us, they know it and understand it, and they feel it. And they know that we're basically a family business and that we care about everything that we do. It's interesting. If you're a deal shop, it's also hard to care about everything you do because sometimes you could stamp them out. Although if you're doing high-rises versus Woody Walk-Up apartment building, 
on a volume basis. Everyone has to glow in a way that you can't with more of a commodity product. Well, I can answer that one a little bit differently. Cool. The real secret to our business and to what went on over a course of all these years is being able to say no, not yes. No to capital, no to the deal, no, no to anything. No to capital, because sometimes there's so much capital that they push deals, you know, and you sometimes get caught up in making deals that really probably shouldn't be made at that particular time. Maybe some other time, but not that particular time. And there have been periods in my business career where saying no was very, very key. And I think that has evolved even with our family about having that understanding of what we do to where we're still in business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we anticipate that we'll be in business for the next 50 years, you know, so. The best deal you've done is always the deal you didn't do. I mean, that really uh, matters. Yeah, that's true. And last question before we kind of go backwards and talk about the history of your firm. You're 88. Congratulations. Thank you. If you're here, we're alive, and we're running with it in the conversation. What's your level of involvement, and how do you manage your life, and how much of it stays involved with business? Believe me, I'd like to be a lot more involved. Okay, okay we'll get to that. Yeah. But, you know, when you turn something over, you got to turn it over. And I'm no longer involved in the business. When I say that and people say, I can't believe that. Well, it's true. I don't know if Paula indicated that to you yesterday or not, but I'm not. I don't go to meetings. I don't go to staff meetings. You know, we have a board, so we meet and I get a lot of information and I do get information when I ask for it. Right. But I'm not necessary in the business. And it's been that way for a long, long time. I help with uh, things that I enjoy. You know, I enjoy the people in our business. I enjoy uh -huh. communicating with them, talking to them, and finding out how they're doing and how they feel and their families, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. And you split your time between Florida, here? Yeah, well, actually spent over 50 years in Aspen. Right. And then about five years or six years ago, we now spend time in Florida. Uh -huh. in the winter and loved Aspen, still do, and family still is in Aspen. And We're going to come back to Aspen because it's one of your signature deals. <laughs> so, yes, yes, yes. That was really terrific. So you've co-founded this company in 1960. Is that right? Right. So talk about the start of your career in real estate, what that looked like, what your intention was, and how it became what this is. Serendipitous. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. My partner and I, neither one of us had any real estate experience or anything else like that. And we were friends from grammar school and high school. Through serendipity, my neighbor, I was married, got married young, and my neighbor next door was an attorney and he was representing some really key people. He worked at a firm that was representing some real key real estate people. And one evening, he and his wife and my partner and his wife and my wife sat around talking and Marvin Romantic, that was his name, said, well, we're let's do a deal, you know. And one thing led to another, introductions to mortgage bankers, to buying land, things of that sort. There was one occasion that I can relate to is that uh, one of the big deals that we did was a high-rise on Lakeshore Drive here in Chicago in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. Very, very, right around 1960. Big deal that you did, meaning you bought or you built? We put a deposit on land uh -huh. to build a high-rise residential building. And I had saved up, I think it was like thirteen or $15,000. <laughs> we were going to buy a house. Uh-huh. And I went to my wife and I said, well, I'm putting this down as a deposit. We needed 30000 I believe, for a deposit on 450,000 foot purchase of land, which in that time was huge. You know, right. Huge. And she said, are you crazy? I said, no, that's what we're going to do. And I tell you that story because spouses are very, very important when you're starting an entrepreneurial way of life. Mm -hmm. And you got to take risk. And that's the kind of risks that you take, you know. So we did. We ended up. And then through a mortgage bank, we were introduced to somebody here at the Continental Bank 
who happened to know the land that we had an option on. And he was wired into it, and he knew that it was a good opportunity. Uh-huh. So my partner and I, we went to visit with him. Uh-huh. He was the banker. And we needed the balance of the money to close within two or three weeks. And he said, okay, I'll be there. I'll provide the capital for you to close. We were excited. And the bank was on a second level, and it had an escalator going down to the lobby. Right. As we were going down to the lobby, I said to Marvin, I said, you know, he says he's going to be there. We don't have any documentation yet, or we don't have... How do we know? And he, Marvin looked at me and says, well, you want to go back and ask him? I said, no, <laughs> I'm not going back. And he showed up. These were the early days. The handshake very, was very everything the handshake, right. It was really cute because after you know, we did a lot of business with him, we started to do business. And he would always say, you know, you guys, when you sign a note, it says, I promise to pay. It doesn't say I promise to renew. <laughs> You know, that's the kind of right. guy he was. And so that really started us off. And that was your first high-rise? Marvin got involved with somebody else that had built a high-rise, and I worked with him, and we were moonlighting on this all the time. Right. Actually, both of us were moonlighting. And then I decided to become a broker, and I went to school to get a broker's license. And mm-hmm. Moonlighting meaning you're doing on the side, yeah, built your yeah, first yeah, high. What, right, what were right. you doing on the front? If on the side is... Well, Marvin worked for the liquefied petroleum institute or something, some analytical job. Yeah, and what were you doing? At that time, I did all kinds of things from automobile business to selling cars to going out of business sales and manufacturing hats and all kinds of different things. So you're manufacturing hats, and then you and your partner tie up for the cost of the down payment on a home, a site that becomes a high-rise in Chicago. Well, yeah, but, you know, we were both active guys, and by that time, we were, you know, close to 30, uh-huh. and we were able to... You're able to do that at that do things, decade right. in the country. I'm thinking the wild, wild west in Chicago, but it's not. Well, opportunities are always available to anybody, anytime. I uh, believe that. Yeah, even when in today's environment. Look at the opportunities that you see, the technology that young people create. In real estate, it's become much more institutional and harder yes. for a guy to do this instead of buy a house. Right, right. In tech, the world's open. But in real estate, it's a mature business, not necessarily one where fortunes can no longer be made. Not true at all. But it's different business now. Yeah, it is. It's a lot different. Yeah. From so you I start started. the company, and then for 20 years or so, you actually have a company with your partner, and then you buy them out. So maybe yeah. kind of go through that. Well, we started to develop buildings and manage buildings and lease buildings and buy build. You know, we were in the business of right. doing deals. Mm-hmm. And it was a deal orientation kind of business. And again, it was the capital partners that we had. And the capital changes. Well, sometimes it's insurance companies or it could be anything, you right. know. And so we were always able to gathered enough capital to do a deal when we had to do a deal. Deals focused in Chicago or deals it was radiating? All that in? was all focused in Chicago at that time. The building you're in right now, we built in 1969 or 70. And actually, we've sold this building. We just closed a month or so ago. The 10th time we've sold this building. <laughs> you just got out of the building for the 10th time. We sold the building for the 10th time. Every time we've sold the building, we stayed in, had a piece of the deal, and continued. We have our offices here, and these offices have been here since 1970. And have you managed the building ever since? Yeah, managed the building, leased the building. And out of the 10 people that institutions or whatever it was that were in ownership, every one of them made money except one. Uh They didn't lose money, but they didn't make any money which is a commentary on real estate and that is in good locations and, you know, and maintained well. Commentary is an interesting one. You build the building, you have your offices here for 30, 40 years, you manage the building through the process, and ownership has come and gone 10 times. That describes a different headset around what real estate is. It's a liquid asset, but it's sitting in a place, and well, there's common elements to it. It's not liquid. It's a semi-liquid. Well, it's trading. So trading 10 times yeah, has some know, liquidity it, to it. Yeah. It's an asset that once it's built, it's built. Right. It's never going to change. 
might cosmetically change interior right. or exterior, but once you build a building, that's it. And it's not like manufacturing glasses or ashtrays or you got the mold, you keep doing it. You know, it, every building is different. Yeah, in this case, and you're the common element through that entire history sitting right here. So talk about how the company then became the Golub Company when you did that. and Well, I think it was around 1980. We had been together almost 25 years at the time. You know, our interests sort of were different. Marvel would like to do one deal at a time, and I'd like to do more things. And I also kind of felt that my family would be interested in if I continued the business, and his family really wasn't interested. So we decided to split. And interestingly enough, I didn't hire a lawyer, he didn't hire a lawyer. We used the same lawyers that we used collectively, the same accounting people. And you know, it was very complicated because we had all these general limited partnerships and everything else. But we just worked through it with our own analysts as far as values. And we're able to conclude a transaction where I generally wanted to buy the business and he kept most of the assets. And at the closing, I'll never forget this because everybody was sitting around and, and these are people that we've known and grew up in the business with us. And one of them said, you know, everybody here has talked about, they've never experienced the dissolution of a partnership like this, you know. And almost simultaneously, my partner and I both sort of said, well, it's a tribute to Freud. <laughs> How so? Because we were both interested in psychology and uh -huh. we both spent time with therapy and things of that sort to get to a point where... It was a peaceful transition. Yes, yeah. It was a peaceful life. Yeah. And <laughs> did he go... That's and he eight. continued doing things as well. So he did continue, but not as aggressively no, not, as you wanted to no, do. No, not in the activity that we generated and that we did. It's a rare story because often the birth has a meaningful amount of acrimony or the split of a partnership has acrimony, competitiveness, and different elements that make it really hard well, to make this, that so Well, in this so particular easy. case, we knew each other very, very, very well. And it was the right thing to do for both of us. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Freud. But then also you had a generation coming up that you knew, right. which helped understand. Well, I didn't know. I assumed okay. that they would be interested. Never told anybody they had to be in the business. Right. So let's talk about that. So we'll talk about Running a family business and succession and how that's worked and how that fits culturally. And then maybe we'll talk about some signature deals because both are interesting. But how did your family come into the business? We're now with generation three in the business. So kind of talk about what that means. Well, first of all, Paula, who you met, she was the first one in high school. She'd work. And then my son, Lee, also in high school and worked in the business. When I say in the business, I guess Lee was working at probably a residential walk-up deal someplace and, you know, maintenance or whatever the case may be. Right. And Paula, the same. So I guess Sheila really was not, it's Michael Newman's wife, who was actually president of the company. Michael. Yeah, mm -hmm. my son-in-law. Right. So it just sort of happened, you know. It's hard to explain, but. So one of the questions that was interesting talking at dinner with Paul about this is you kind of had three family members, one in-law and two of your children, took over the business. And I always look at leadership teams of what does, sometimes it's sole person, but in this case it was three people, and what do they bring together? What chemistry do they bring to complement each other to then give you the comfort to step up and away or into maybe chairman kind of roles? I got to think about that because <laughs> I met Michael and I always liked Michael because I knew him, you know, for a long time. And right. I, I liked him. And he was CPA and worked for one of the big county firms and then got into the mortgage business. And I always liked him and I really was hoping that he would come into the business. The family or the business no, first? No, my business. Okay, first in the business. Yeah, Paula was in the business. She worked and did all kinds of things. But then Michael and my daughter, Sheila, were living together. And I really wanted them in the business. And I said, well, they're living together. Can't do anything about that. <laughs> so after they got married, I invited Michael into the business. He was interested in coming. 
And I'll never forget, I told my daughter, Sheila, I said, you know, if Michael comes in with me, it's one thing if he comes home and he says, my boss is an a-hole. <laughs> it's another thing he says, you know, your dad's an a-hole. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, but none of that really occurred. And it just worked well. And Michael really took responsibility. And then Lee came into the business. We had to recruit him to get him to come in. He was here working for a competitor of ours, a friendly competitor. Uh So then he finally came in. And Michael and Lee always knew each other for a long time and were friendly. And our family just was easy, you know, Paula and Sheila and Michael and Lee and their spouses. And if you gel those Paula, Lee, and Michael together as a leadership team, how does it become a comfortable leadership well, team, not it, a competitive team, and how do they complement each other? Right. When I decided to invite Michael to be president of the company, mm-hmm. I sat down with Paula and with Lee. I said, you know, I'm thinking of making Michael president of the company. And they looked at me and they said, what do you mean thinking of making him president of the company? He is president. <laughs> <laughs> it's a natural it thing. Was, it it was happened. a natural, just very natural. Michael took responsibility. And, then, you know, as far as the deal orientation and the growth of the business, Michael and Lee together have really built it unbelievably well. So how does that change it, either kind of transactions or geography? And then how did Europe come about to be well, Eastern Europe? Europe was a whole separate thing. So first talk about the company, and then we'll come to Europe, because I'm so curious. Well, the company just grew, Michael and Lee and Paula, Uh along with other people here who are really part of the family. I don't know if you've heard. When I was recruiting, when I was very involved, I was always sort of like, we have a family business. To get people to come into a family business is hard. Right. And I would always tell people that I was recruiting that we really don't have a family business. We have a business that runs like a family. And it was very, very true. Mm-hmm. If, if you spend mm-hmm. some time around here, <laughs> you'll see how everybody's a member of the family. Just everybody feels good around here. They love working here, and they love being involved. So what was the question? The growth. <laughs> so the growth of the company domestically, either new markets, new, and it's always remained a transaction business. A very highly With capital sources being there right. to help you right. grow. Right. And Michael and Lee led it with a number of other terrific people here who have been here for a long time. And Paula, in my mind, is sort of the glue that kind of keeps everybody together. She's terrific as to making sure that the company's values are always at the highest level and that everybody's doing the right thing and that we maintain the integrity that we've earned and the relationships and the feeling that people have about us. Uh-huh. So it's been maintained, certainly through the second generation. Can I ask the question of kind of a triumvirate of people running a company and then what the complementary skill sets look like? And you accomplish that in G2. Any sense of how that might continue in G3 either with complementary skill sets or new people, maybe non-family members. Well, that's very interesting because when it was turned over to G2, we engaged family counselors and I didn't engage them. It was up to them to make the decision on who they wanted to be the family counselor. And then when the third generation came in, I was not involved in that at all. It was the second generation who brought the third generation in and all the rules and regulations and expectations and everything else was really handled by the second generation. I had nothing to do with that. I watched it, you know, and I see it. I see my grandchildren around here. I love it. It's terrific. Wonderful thing. Yeah, it is. It really is a wonderful thing. Wonderful but rare, and it changes over time into G3 or 4. It's less members of the family in the business, less members of that generation in the business. <coughs> and leadership may be outside or inside. You just don't know what that's going to be. You can't control that. Well, it's not a matter of controlling it. It's a matter of, I know what they did. I don't know if Paula told you that they really worked very hard with the entire family. I don't know if she's told you about some of the no. things that we did. We would have them for many, many years the day after Thanksgiving, on Saturday after Thanksgiving when everybody usually would be around. 
no matter who it was. Everybody in the family would get together and we'd talk about the business part of the day because everybody's, my grandchildren and spouses, and you know, it's family business. And uh, it's not a matter of one of my grandchildren or saying, well, my dad built that building. And the other said, no, my dad built that building. No, my dad built that building, you know. We involved them in trying to understand that it is a family business and let them know a little bit about it. And every time we would do something different, you know, we might spend a morning in an architectural office or we might spend a morning in a mechanical room in a high rise or something like that to give them an idea of what the business is about and without any expectations, just right. as a family to be together. So that was always there. And I know my grandchildren are very much aware of the fact that the company was a family business. Understood. And then when the third generation came around, the second generation made sure that there was room for everybody. And we used family counselors who work with everybody in the family, spouses, whether or not they were going to come into business or not. But let them know that from what I understand, the way they did it was they let them know that if they're interested, they could come in under certain rules, education and working somewhere else for a number of years and things like that. And they worked it through. Has to remain a meritocracy, though, at the end of the day. In what way? What do you mean by that? So what do you do for a family member who is ambitious but not worthy? They've accounted for all that. I believe that anybody has to be invited in, not by their parent, and that the parent can't dismiss them. Somebody else has to do that. There's a whole set of rules and regulations. But so far, it's worked. It's worked very well so far. And I think generally, you know, everybody sort of likes everybody, and everybody is... I'm always shocked at the work ethic that I see. It's terrific. I wonder how much of the work ethic in your company, so let's contrast a company that may have a major long-term hold existing portfolio versus a company that has to keep doing deals and have deal flow and relationship flow to make it work. One, you are allowed to coast. You don't have to coast because you could push the portfolio. But on the other hand, you're always doing business. <coughs> And there's a different energy potential around either of those You know, models. I never thought of it that way. That's terrific observation. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> you know, that really, I'd never thought of that. But the reality is you're right. You know, the cash flow is through the deals. We got to keep doing deals to have cash flow. Uh -huh. We don't keep properties for any length of time and uh -huh. that are generating cash flow. You know, a lot of my friends in the business develop buildings they keep them forever, you know, and the values keep going up, it's and it's great. great. It has, wasn't our business model, and still isn't our business model. So that's why we do huge volumes of deals as far as money is concerned, <laughs> and big deals. The crucible of doing huge volume, big deals, high rises, and working with outside equity, that crucible really helps define a company, the skill set, and the intensity with which you have to apply your practice. Yeah, well, the skill set is made up of a lot of people here. Right. You know, they're not just family. You right. Know, so all the other people that really make things happen as well. So how did that bring you to being one of the first U.S. companies to do office and whatever development in Eastern Europe? Getting back to what we were just talking about. Yeah. I always said that if I applied for a job here in my company, I'd never get the job because uh -huh. I don't have the technical capability, educational, you know, all the things that we require now uh -huh. that have required. So the skill sets, the reason I was really successful, whatever the success is, is being able to pick people. It had my ego satisfied by their accomplishments, not necessarily by my own. And that's really one of the secrets to whatever success I've had. How much of that is picking people internally and how much of that is picking people to do business with, say, capital sources? Both, both equally important. You know, sometimes you have opportunities and you say, you know, it just doesn't feel right to do and something you, with that person. You talked before <clears throat> about sometimes the best deals are the ones you don't do. Are any example of a picking a person that was a thoughtful process, yay or nay, in there that exemplifies your ability to do that. No, not really. <laughs> I don't uh, want any nays. Right, that would no, be unfair. Really. Slanderous on the podcast. Right. It's work. And that is 
continued with second generation, and I can even see it continuing with third generation. Now. Mm-hmm. Also a hard thing in a business when your name's on the door to <laughs> spread out the credit for the work. Well, having your name on the door is, a, when we first started out, I would tell managers of our residential buildings, if you alienate a tenant, they're not going to remember you. They remember, remember Gollum, right? <laughs> exactly. And that tenant, that woman that you might have alienated, her husband might be out looking for 100,000 square feet for his office. Right. <laughs> so you really have to have a quality of management and be able to understand that you're working for a company that where the name is on the door. And that every time you do something, it affects me personally at right. that particular time. And that continues, that's just the way it is, you know. But having your name on the door is a little bit different than having a generic name. We chose a generic name for different reasons, but it's interesting because I was gonna use the parallel to, I think of my name on the door in my company, and one of my favorite stories is just true, or one of my favorite metaphors, is if we do a search assignment and we have six people go into the client, one person quote unquote wins and five people don't win, And I want the five who don't win to be equal friends to my firm for the long term to the person who won. And how do you make every interaction one that matters that way? And I think relationships are all about that kind of approach. I'm sure you do it because the way you conduct yourself and the way your people conduct yourself. If you have six candidates, you know, and one is chosen by your client, they're chosen by your client. But you've conducted yourself in a high morality and communication with all of them. They're all winners. These are good people. That's right. Absolutely true. Right. Name on the door matters. But do tell me about Eastern Europe because I'm curious. Okay. You you told me not to get into a long story. Well, this is not a short story. Okay. Tell the story. Our listeners will be curious. In the late 80s, the business wasn't that great. It was tough to do deals. One of the guys came to me and said, we should go to Europe. I said, Europe, why? He said, well, EU 1992, Mm -hmm. that's when the European unions, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Well, he didn't know it, but I was in Europe in the early 70s. And in the 70s, we were the first really American company to get to Europe to bring European pension funds to buy U.S. real estate. And we got into it, made a few deals, had an office in Zurich, believe it or not. I don't know why Zurich, but it was an office in Zurich. And I made a huge mistake. The mistake was that we were still like a mom and pa company, and we were doing some big deals for European pension funds, but then all the big guys got in. And I said, you know, I can't compete with them, which I could have competed in retrospect. Right, you're already there. So I got out, and it was a big mistake. So then Years later, when in late 80s, they talked about going to Europe. I said, you know, first of all, if we go to Europe, it would only have to be with a joint venture partner. Because when you do deals anywhere outside of Chicago, basically, you have to have local Mm -hmm. involvement. Now, the first time around, you're in Europe in order to access European capital to do business in America. Right, right. It was a brokerage type of So now you're coming back to Europe, but this is with a different goal. This is a whole different thing. This is now for development. So anyway, this guy and somebody else that, that actually was, <laughs> it was my son's roommate in college. His name was Dan Meese. And Dan was working, he was an architect and working for Epstein and Company here in Chicago. Epstein was a large engineering and architectural firm. And short the story, they pitched me and the president of Epstein about going to Europe for EU 92 because they informed me that Epstein had an office in London, in Paris, and they had an office in Tel Aviv and one in Warsaw, which never registered, but London and Paris was what registered. Well, after they made the pitch, Mickey Cooperman, who was president of Epstein, called me up and said, Gene, why are we even thinking about going to Europe. And we were going to do a venture with them because they had offices there. We were developers. They were architects and engineers. And I said, Mickey, I'm with you. I don't know why we're, you know, there are plenty of developers in Europe. They don't need us. He said, we should go to Warsaw, he said. I said, Warsaw? Have you ever been in Warsaw? He says, yeah. He said, I lived there for a few years. 
Also, we're the oldest American company doing business in Poland, where we were building and have been building basically factories for the Polish government. And he said, the guy that's running it for us right now is going to be in Chicago, and I want you to meet him. Okay, now, in 1988, I got remarried, and I married a woman who was born in Warsaw. Ah, ah. <laughs> and came to Chicago, and I met her in Chicago, and in 88, we were married. And this was right at all this stuff started to come about Warsaw. I had never been there. And then when I told my wife, I said, we're thinking about going to Warsaw. She said, are you crazy? She says, she ran away from there. She says, it's going to be hard to do business with them. But as it turned out, that's how it all started. I met this guy by the name of Mac Reskevich, who was still very, very close to, still do deals with. And we've been in Central and Eastern Europe for almost 30 years now. Mm. And did you start with a capital partner? <laughs> well, the first deal we had, we decided that there was no capital partner in 1989 and 1990 for... Doing business there? Yeah. How are you going to find people to do business there? So we decided the deal that we focused on, and that was through Mac because he found the deal there, we said, you know, it was only about a 100,000 square foot office building that we could get built. And worst comes to worst, we'd figure out how to put the money together. But as it turned out, we were introduced to the International Finance Corporation. Do you know who the International Finance Corporation is? I've heard of it. I You've don't know what's Oh, I had no idea who the International Finance Corporation. I never knew what the term multilateral lender was. But that's part of the World Bank. Right. It's the finance arm of the World right, Bank. Right, right. The finance arm of the World Bank. And what does the World Bank do? I have no idea what the World Bank. But there's Sounds big, though. Huge. Big. Uh, they the World Bank. They supply capital for infrastructure. Uh-huh. We were introduced to the IFC. We were talking to, his name was Damian Damianos or something like that, a Greek guy. Uh-huh. Terrific guy, really understood what we were talking about. We said, well, you know, we want to build an office building. There's no office, there's no Western style office buildings. Because at the time, in the late 80s, you know, it was all communism and there was no reward for excellence. They never had a reward for excellence. They would use local architects, local contractors, a lot of bartering to find money. It was so different. I think cheap, drab, gray. That's what comes to mind yeah, as you're talking about yeah, that world but, then. But they built buildings that were not Western-quality buildings like we did. So we were going to build the first Western-quality office building on this particular location, and we got the International Finance Corporation to do it because they were able to do hotels because they considered hotels infrastructure. So we convinced them the best we could that building an office building was infrastructure as well. Mm -hmm. Because at the time already, all the major law firms, all the major accounting firms were already in Central and Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. They had offices all over. And this little 100,000 square foot building that we built had Fortune 100 companies as right. tenants. Of course. You know, it was, was a good place to be. Right. So that's what started the whole thing. And over the time in your company, what volume of work have you done there throughout Western Europe or Eastern Europe? In Warsaw, what happened was the whole European experience with Central and Eastern was great for me. How so? Personally because it renewed my interest in business. I was in my 60s already, mm -hmm. and I had an expression, I couldn't go to another meeting with a 28-year-old MBA. I had to bring my MBAs to these meetings. So it was great for me personally. And uh, you'd already passed the baton in the company? Yeah, Michael was running the company. Yeah, and so had, therefore, for and the only at that time, the only two people really that were involved were Michael and I. We were the only two guys that were uh -huh. spending any time. Everybody else, nobody was spending any time in right. Europe. But I was in Europe every two or three weeks for a week or 10 days, and I did that for over 20 years. Wow. And it was great. Just give a sense of volume so we know like how much well, or we how many. Well, we built, or... I think, it was seven or eight office buildings in Warsaw, built buildings, office buildings in Prague and Sofia and Bratislava and Budapest. And They're coming to get you here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it was interesting when I was doing all this. I always said, I'm going to Europe and I'm going to all these ex-communist countries. 
why isn't the CIA talking to me? You know, why don't they question me? You know, never heard a word about it. And one of my passports, I had 80 entries into wow. Warsaw, just that one passport. So it was a great experience. It was still there. I just came from a meeting right now with one of our partners who runs our That's Polish great. office. And it was just great. It renewed my interest. And it was an experience that my peer group wouldn't have. Wouldn't have. Right. And everybody liked to hear the stories. And That's a discontinuous but related business. Discontinuous change for you, but a very related business where you can use your whole business. skill set. It's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. No matter where you are, you got to deal with entitlements. You got to deal with somebody, no, you can't build it. And it's exactly the same. It's no different than it is here in any yeah. other city. You never did anything in Kosovo, did you? No, no, no. My daughter's there, not the World Bank, but with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and so something similar to what you had done. And there's so much development going on in that country, just watching it. And it's not going to be smart development to the level that it should be. So it's frustrating watching them. Well, let's get this up here. Here's the land. Let's just build a civic center unrelated to transportation, unrelated to where people live. And did that time in that part of the business cause your book so you're a novelist <laughs> i wrote a book <laughs> which has nothing uh, I we're going to advertise idea. the book it's going to hit the bestseller list after our listeners <laughs> go to amazon all the proceeds of my book goes to charity so but anyway the book the idea for the book was way before i ever even knew about eastern europe but over a process of a period of time it evolved it i incorporated that into the story. Uh -huh. And we talked about an elevator speech before, but what's the dust cover of this book? It's a religious political thriller. Religious political thriller. It's a novel. Is appropriate in today's world. So yeah, it's yeah. on my nightstand. I'm going to read it. So we're going to start to wrap up. I have some questions I always ask at the end, but what haven't I asked you about your career and business that are headlines that you want to talk about? I don't have any headlines. Okay. <laughs> I really don't. It's just been a great trip for me. Great trip. I just can't believe what happened from where I started and to be in this particular position to be sitting here talking to somebody like you on a podcast. I grew up in a ethnic Chicago streets, and I was an only child. My father died at 46. So it was like you talk about bootstrap, that's what I did. And so to see where I'm at today and see my family and wonderful marriage and you have another daughter in our second marriage. She's now 26. Uh -huh. Terrific. So it's just great. You know, I'm happy as a lark. Congratulations. <laughs> it's funny. I want to think of different things in real estate. I think of different things of founders and I want to hear some chest pounding, but you're not going to go there and congratulations for not. I'm going to tell you a story. I was fortunate had three Lifetime Achievement Awards, two in Europe and one here in the U.S., uh -huh. ULA. When I was approached for a Lifetime Achievement Award with ULI, it was really, that that to me was like, hey, that's an acknowledgement, right. you know, that's a real acknowledgement. And 500 people at the Four Seasons, all the best of my peer group, you know, it's wonderful. So obviously I had to make a little speech. I made a speech, I thanked, very humble, thanked everybody, this, that, and the other thing. So when I was finished with my speech, I said to the audience, and to answer your question, I think about real estate 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Have to. It's always on my mind. Business is always on my mind, whether I'm retired, not retired, but 24 hours a day. And I'm going to share a very personal story with you. My daughter, my youngest daughter, was on her way to college. And my wife and my daughter and I were having dinner one night. And we're very open. And I said to my daughter, name is Gabrielle. I said, Gabrielle, look, you're going to college. You're going to be on your own. There's only one thing guys have on their mind. Only one thing. And she looked at me, she laughed, you know. I said, and I'm serious about this. So what's going to happen? You're on your own. And what's going to happen is one day you're going to make a decision to go for it. Mm -hmm. You're going to find... Somebody that would be appealing. So here's what you have to promise me. In the heat of passion, you have to stop and make sure that the guy has a condominium. <laughs> when I said that, 
my wife and my daughter looked at me, they bust out laughing. I meant to say condom. <laughs> and you weren't able to. because <laughs> I said condominium. I didn't think about condominium. I meant to say condom. Well, whenever I see anybody, they talk about that evening at the ULI. They don't remember all the wonderful things I said, but they remember that story. Second time in this conversation, Freud came up. So really? the first time is how you and your partner were able yeah. to divorce amicably. Yeah. And then the second time was when Freud came into your mouth when you started to say condom, but you said condominium. Oh, I never thought of it like See, that. See, it's the Very same good. thing. Yeah. So last comment, and this may have to do with the prior one. I always end the podcast with a question, which is if you had advice for a young person entering the real estate business, what would that advice be? Don't, don't say, be fearful of risk. Don't be fearful of risk. Because the only way it happens is somewhere along the line, you got to take some risk. And the worst that could happen is it doesn't work. So you take some other risks somewhere else. And risk isn't about money. It's the emotional risk, family risk, all kinds of risks that are involved when you try to do something new. It's great advice. It's funny. I get nervous before I do a podcast, right? And I've done 60 of these. They're easy. They're fun. They're delightful. And although you still get nervous, right? You're still taking a risk to be with a person who's one, two, three, four levels above who you should be talking to. And it's the same in business, right? Because in the day-to-day -day business, you're taking that risk of a relationship. You're taking the risk of going up, up. You're always pushing up. And if you're not always pushing up for that next thing that you do, you're coasting and gliding. It's not nearly as impactful. There's risks every day. And they're not all financial risks. They're ego risks. Absolutely true. Hey, Gene, thank you very much. This has been a delightful conversation. Well, I've enjoyed it as well. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 